You're listening to Choose FI Radio. The blueprint for financial independence lives here. If you're looking to unlock the secrets to financial independence and early retirement, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and join a community of like-minded people who are getting off the hamster wheel and taking control of their lives in the pursuit of financial independence. Choose FI, your home for financial independence online. guys, one of the things that I'm very excited about is the fact that we don't just have to drop some information and then walk away. In fact, over time, the information that we've been able to gather on this show and provide back to our community has become more accurate and frankly, more dynamic. It encompasses more life situations. And we recorded an episode last year talking with several individuals and how they tackled college and how they were able to do it for less. And Anthony actually messaged us to say, guys, uh, I use some of the tactics that were discussed, but I did something else to the degree that I actually went to college my senior year for profit. I think I have some information that would be valuable for your audience. And we knew that this was an episode that our audience would actually get a kick out of. And so, yeah, we're going to explore this today with Anthony. And to help me with this, I have my co-host Brad here with me today. How you doing, buddy? Hey, Jonathan, I am doing quite well. And yeah, you're right. This is going to be an episode about life optimization, about house hacking, about creating your own luck. And like you said, Anthony reached out to us after just being a listener, right? And being a member of this community, which is what we're always talking about here. We're talking about crowdsourcing information. And Anthony said, man, I had this amazing thing where I went to college senior year for a profit. And we just knew instantly that's something we need to bring to the community. So with that, Anthony, welcome to the show. Thank you guys for having me. I'm happy to be here. So Anthony, let me start by just saying, before we even discuss how you went to school for profit, is that replicable? I I just want to make sure before we spend all this time on this episode, can someone else listen to this and to some varying degree replicate that process? Yeah, I think so. It's not a one-size-fits-all solution, but there are a couple of pieces in play that I think that everybody can gear themselves toward where they can be successful. All right. Well, let's back up a little bit here. Were you an epic high schooler? Like, did you chart your course to a for-profit senior year, your freshman year in high school? No, this wasn't a, a plan straight out of the gate. Uh, I, I always had good grades in high school, but I, I wasn't a great uh, standardized test taker. Uh, I knew that the grades would be important as I moved down the line. However, I did not have all of the information that would put this into play right off the bat. I was basically a know-nothing high schooler who was putting all of the pieces together. I knew that scholarships would be important. I knew that filling out financial aid forms would be important. But every step along the way, I, I learned something else that helped me ultimately get to that point later on. So you said putting all the pieces together. I guess from the setup here, it sounds like senior year, you optimize this in college. But obviously, we want to hear what you did precisely. But can someone do this right from freshman year? with the information that they're going to learn from you basically here today? 
I think so. I think somebody could get a lot farther than I was. There are pieces to my story, and each university may be a little different, but there are pieces that may only fall into play in the subsequent years. Uh, For example, being part of housing and residence life as a resident assistant, those things are usually only open to sophomores and above. But a lot of the pieces along the way of my journey, I think, can be replicated, and each piece really built upon one another to get to that point. Well, let's talk about the pieces. And I would imagine the first piece is how did you pick the college? Did every college accept you and you just said a la carte, this is what I want to do? Or what was your strategy for picking a college? Yeah, I I knew early on that I wanted to study architecture. And that was really a, a process of designing buildings that was interesting to me. I would later find out that architecture is all guts and little glory, financially speaking. But uh, that was what I wanted to do when I was in high school. And there are only two architecture schools in in Indiana where I live. Uh, One of them is public and one of them is private. Uh, And I knew that the likelihood of me getting accepted to the private school wasn't very good. Furthermore, the ability to pay for that private school wasn't great either. And so thankfully, the state school accepted me. And because of my my GPA, they offered me a presidential scholarship, which was worth half the cost of tuition for the eight semesters that I was there. And so with me going to a state school that had among the lowest tuitions in Indiana, cutting that tuition bill in half was a really great start right from the beginning. All right, Anthony. So I want to slow down on this presidential scholarship because this sounds amazing. So it's half tuition for all four years, eight semesters. So you described a couple of minutes ago, like an A minus student that doesn't immediately bring to mind. Oh, wow. He's going to get a half merit scholarship at a state university. Talk me through how that worked. And this sounds hopeful for the audience that that this maybe is plausible when most people think, oh, you need to get Ivy League type grades to get a merit scholarship even at a state school. So talk me through how you even approach the getting this scholarship. Yeah. So the presidential scholarship may be called different things at different universities, but this is the basic merit scholarship for the state university that I went to. And there really was no application for the scholarship above and beyond applying to the college. This was something that was included when they accepted me to the university. They said that, you know, you've been accepted, you can enroll in in your classes, and we would like to offer you the scholarship for half tuition. All right. So I actually want to dial in on this as well. So you said this was merit aid. So I just want to clarify that when you got this scholarship that knocked your tuition in half, This was not based on your EFC at all. It wasn't based on your finances. It was just based on an A minus GPA. Yeah, that's correct. This portion was strictly based on merit. Cool. Can you give us a sense for how much savings it actually was? And in terms of timeline, when this was, when, when did you actually attend this school? Yeah. So I graduated high school in 2008. Tuition at the time was, was roughly $8,000 per year in state. And so the the scholarship knocked it down to roughly 4,000 and that increased a little bit every year, but that's where we started. Wow. <laughs> that That's incredible. It's incredibly affordable. Do you think it's kind of like in terms of cost of tuition at the school now, is, is it still within 20, 30, 40% of that? Yeah, it's gone up over the years, but it's still a relatively affordable school. It's an in-state school for in-state tuition. And so the cost has been maintained as affordably as, as it can be. So Anthony, you're saying it's 8,000 for the tuition. Do you have any sense roughly how much the room aboard was? Yeah, at the time it was about half and half. So it was about 8,000 for tuition and maybe 8,500 or so for room and board. Okay. All right. So it's about 16,500 all in for your freshman year. And then obviously every year thereafter went up a bit. 
That's correct. This sounds incredibly affordable. And so I'm excited to see where this goes. Practically speaking, you know, a budget for a student at this period of time, 16000 a year is going to essentially get you room and board plus tuition. And with the presidential scholarship, you've been able to carve 4000 of that off. What else did you do? The step really before the presidential scholarship was applying for financial aid because I, I didn't know any better than to to pay for school with loans, right? Fortunately or unfortunately, you know, I, my, my family didn't have a ton of money growing up, but neither, neither of my parents made a, a lot of money. And so when I filled out the FAFSA, my expected family contribution was, was virtually zero every year. And again, because of the, the merit to the way the Pell Grant systems, and more specifically, Indiana has uh, additional grants at the state level through, through some of their programs, uh, I was able to get grants on top of the, the presidential scholarship every year, and those totaled a, a roughly $8,000 again. So we've been able to reduce that price down from 16000 down to 12000 and then you were able to get 8000 of need-based scholarship, taking it down to roughly four remaining, right? Yeah, and we can break that down a little further. I believe at the time the Pell Grant, which is a federal program, was I believe $5,500 a year. And then uh, Indiana specifically has Governor O'Bannon, former Governor O'Bannon's grant, which was the remainder. All right, Anthony. So I, I know we're using kind of rough numbers here, but somewhere in the vicinity of between the presidential scholarship, the Pell Grant and the O'Bannon grant, you're at about like 13000 and a little bit of change. And the total all-in cost is somewhere in the sixteen, seventeen thousand 17,000 range. So we're looking at three to 4,000. I guess, is that your first year? Are you paying that out of pocket? Are you getting loans? Like how did you make up those? I assume that first year, the three to 4,000. Yeah, that first year. And really the first three years, I made that up by going after student loans. And again, fortunately or unfortunately, because of my expected family contribution, I was able to take out subsidized student loans through the the federal student loan program. Those are loans that I was able to borrow with, and I didn't owe any interest on those loans until I believe six months after I graduated. So I was using the student loans to cover the small amount of tuition and room and board that I had remaining uh, plus a, a little bit of, of spending for just being a college student and having expenses. Architecture school was rather cost intensive. You're, you're building models, you're, you're buying softwares, you're, your intensive costs inside the program above and beyond tuition and room and board existed. So I, I had to borrow some money to get that done. Now, one of the things that really seemed interesting to me is that there was a, a slight margin between what the government estimated you could borrow and subsidize loans and what you actually needed. And you had a pretty cool little hack that you developed for that. I'd love to hear about it. Yeah, I could never quite figure out why the government expected me to spend more on college than the true cost of the college. But there was a, a margin there where I was able to borrow more money than I needed and my first year of, of college, I didn't do it because I didn't need it and I was risk averse, but I began to wise up. And sophomore year, I ended up borrowing as much as I could with those subsidized loans that I wasn't paying any interest on. So the government wasn't charging me any interest to have this money. So I pulled it all out and I threw them in certificates of deposit and I, I didn't make a ton of money on them, but it was basically me earning a little bit of a spread on money that I wasn't being charged to have. And, you know, it's unfortunate that I didn't hear about you guys sooner 
that somebody wasn't talking about Phi to me, if I would have thrown that money in VTSAX for the time that I was in college, that could have been huge. <laughs> so this is uh, some loan interest arbitrage in essence? That's absolutely what it is. Your future in funny. banking was Hold secure. <laughs> yes, certificates of depression. That's right. <laughs> so the setup for this was senior year for profit, right? And And as I'm understanding it, Currently, you're about there's about a three thousand dollars spread, three to four thousand dollars that you're currently paying out of pocket. How do you bridge that gap and move to profit? I was hired as a resident assistant through Housing Residence Life, and specifically at my university, the resident assistants received a, a free room and board package. So you didn't pay any room and board, as well as you uh, you got a small monetary stipend. It was it was about sixty dollars every other week. But the fact that you got to live on campus and eat on campus for free really moved it over the top. Well, so how much do you think that was worth? So that's free room and board. So we're assuming that's somewhere in the 8,000 range. That's that's how you set this up, plus that little stipend. Is that roughly accurate? Yeah, room and board at the time was about $8,500. And maybe the stipend was maybe 1000 to $1,500 over the course of the entire year. That's cool. Do you know if most schools that have that have RAs, which I imagine to be most schools in America, do they pay for all of room and board? Does it differ? Is it sometimes just the room? What have you seen? Yeah, this is really a college-specific, university-specific question. It's my understanding that every college or university that has on-campus housing has some form of a resident assistant. I've heard personally of as much as room and board and some tuition help, and I'm sure that there are some schools that, that do less than full room and board, too. Gotcha. Okay, so we're talking senior year now. I just want to kind of summarize all this. Based on tuition and room and board increases, you're somewhere around 18000 and change. I think 18500 is what you told us for the total all-in cost of tuition and room and board for someone going to this university. But you're getting about 8,500 off for being an RA, and you still have these scholarships and grants, which total about 13,500 you know, in total, those three. So you're at $22,000, and the cost is only 18,500. That's a $3,500 profit. My original thought would be, do they still give you all those grants and scholarships? Like, how does that, how are you actually making a profit? I would think they would pull one of those back, but talk us through like the mechanics of how this works. Yeah, I thought the same way you did, Brad. I thought that they were going to dial back the grants, uh, but uh, that didn't happen. And the bursar sent me an email early on that senior year asking me for a, a checking account and a routing number to deposit the surplus. Wow. So <laughs> that's amazing. Like, I, we need to I, we need to rewind a second because I think someone's listening to this saying, well, the, the key to this is the RA position. Like once you've got these other things dialed in, the RA position moved you significantly into the black. Is this just something that when you like you did this your senior year? I know that becoming a resident advisor, it's a little bit competitive. I, I mean, not everybody gets this spot. If you were going to rewind and talk to your earlier self and kind of almost set yourself up for this position, what advice would you give? Yeah, the RA position and the RA selection process at my university, and I would assume most universities, is a cutthroat process. There are a limited number of positions, and there are tons of people trying to get them because everyone knows the weight of the financial impact that they carry. And so what I did specifically and what advice I would give is to get involved with housing and residence life 
as a freshman, as a sophomore, in some basically volunteer level that will help you get forward in the selection process later on. I was ultimately interviewing with with people who I knew from my volunteer experience, and that definitely set me up on a course to be successful. The thread in this, man, is it kind of actually ties to getting a career, any particular job that you want. How do you get any job? You find the people that are in that position and you make that direct connection as opposed to just in mass putting your application. And so you are actually laying the groundwork for your network long before you actually needed it, right? Long before you were applying, you were basically setting that up. And it, it actually reminds me, you started this by saying that you were a, a know-nothing high schooler. How did you get from a know-nothing high schooler to a savvy college kid that kind of knew the rule book and was able to pull this off? How did you realize to even start volunteering with the housing department that early on? Yeah, so I had time on my side. I I watched how the program worked my freshman year, and I really got involved in housing residents' life in my sophomore year, and that involved uh, the hall council. That involved the residence hall association, which was similar to to a governmental body for the residence hall specifically, and it, it was a stacking situation where each role that I filled helped me meet people and helped me gain presence that would allow me to continue on and achieve becoming a resident assistant, which was the ultimate financial win. So becoming a residential advisor, is that really only possible senior year? Is this something that like, if you're gaming this out, you could have that you could be, you know, an advisor by sophomore or junior year? Yeah, I was a resident assistant with many sophomores. A lot of them just played the game a little better than I did for one reason or another. (laughs) Well, let's talk about that. So was there one particular person that if you're talking about building relationships, could you have done it in a more optimized manner? Like what did those kids who who got to be RAs as sophomores and juniors do better than you? Yeah. So at my university, you had to take a one credit hour class prior to being eligible to become a resident assistant. So you have to know the rules. That's the key. And the kids who were able to get RA positions as sophomores had to take that class as a freshman. So you have to know how you play. In terms of being uh, connected to the right people, I think that that would help, but that that didn't ultimately, there was not one person who got me a resident assistant job. It was a broad spectrum of housing experience and knowing collectively the people in the room that, that got me to where I needed to be there. So you mentioned stacking and I love this. You kind of see how one piece actually builds on, on the next, but I'm curious, you know, you weren't the RA that freshman and sophomore year. So what else were you able to do in that period of time? During sophomore and junior year, I had what I would consider one of the easiest, one of the funnest, one of the coolest jobs on campus. And this was a glorified security guard, except you didn't have any real security responsibilities above and beyond swiping ID cards. So every residence hall at my university had someone who manned the front desk from midnight until four o'clock in the morning and then four o'clock in the morning until eight o'clock in the morning where your responsibility was to make sure that the people who were coming into the building after hours lived in the building. And you did that by swiping their ID card and proving it through the, the computerized system. Well, I lived in the honors dormitory at the time and I worked in the honors dormitory. So very few people were coming in after midnight And so during that time, there was a lot of downtime where I was able to get homework done. I was able to catch up on on life in general. Uh, Occasionally, I even caught up on a little bit of sleep while doing this because I knew that nobody was coming in between 4 o'clock in the morning and when the swimming team was leaving at 5.30. 
So there was a, a lot of time for me to be productive in whatever way that looked. And this was one of the few jobs on campus that paid a little bit better than minimum wage. And at the time, 725 was minimum wage. I think I was making 850 an hour as a as a night desk attendee. But, as a part-time but that was sleeper? A, no. As a part-time <laughs> sleeper, that's right. <laughs> so, a dollar and a quarter per hour premium? <laughs> Brad would not survive during that timeline. He couldn't do this. But I got to think for the vast majority of us, that there's something there. I mean, for you to be, and, I, and I'm actually really curious about this one, you're essentially getting paid to do homework, right? If, if you're being productive during this window, you have this carved out quiet time to work on this. And I guess you build your sleep schedule around it. And then two, the other half of that is, and I'm curious, is this in some way also building your resume for when you apply to be a resident advisor? Yeah, both of these things are accurate. You know, a lot of people would go and, and apply for jobs at the dining hall or even apply for jobs off campus. And for those jobs, you have to work the whole time. And you also probably have some commuting time built in. My commuting time was walking down the stairs in my pajamas, sitting at the desk, and I was there. I was good. <laughs> Where's Anthony? I think he's downstairs in a Snuggie. <laughs> <laughs> so... There's that piece. Uh, the other piece, in terms of this stacking on to the RA position, the night desk position was staffed by Housing and Residence Life, the same department that oversees all of student housing, that oversees all of the staffing decisions for RAs later in the, the year. So again, I'm meeting with the same people who are making these decisions. I worked for them part-time before I worked for them full-time. So well done, man. I mean, like in summary here, your senior year of school would have cost you 18,500. You end up earning $22,000 in various scholarships, grants, and earnings through the RA program, netting $3,500 in profit your senior year. I think when many of us talk about the lost decade, the driver for that lost decade between 20 and 30 is the fact that we are repaying a mountain of student loan debt because of like this stacking that you just laid out for us you have completely flipped the script. And I know that's something that we're continuing to try to push out to our community so that other people can benefit from this, you know, essentially this journey, this journey that you charted. Let's talk about how that set you up for your path to financial independence. Yeah. So I graduated from undergrad with about $12,000 in student loan debt, really from the first three years of school. And I paid those loans off completely within the first six months of me being out in the workforce. And so I never paid a single dime in student loan interest. And I did that through really keeping my expenses as low as I possibly could. Uh, when I was working that first job, I was house hacking as a renter in someone else's house. I kept my, my expenses as low as I possibly could. And I parlayed that into an opportunity to really save as much money after I was done with student loans to get myself into my first home of my own as quickly as I could. Okay. So I definitely want to talk about house hacking, obviously, but I just want to slow down real quick on that $12,000 in student loans. It wasn't that interest was accruing all this time and it wasn't going to hit until six months after. It just, it didn't start, right? The clock didn't start until six months after. Did you have like an impending like interest bomb coming at six months after graduation? Or was it just, that's when the clock started on like your first dollar of interest expense? That would be when the clock would start. With these subsidized loans, you're not paying any interest on them while you're in school. And they also give you a grace period, which was six months at the time from the time that you were no longer enrolled in school until the time that you were expected to start paying with interest. 
Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. And then the 12,000 that you use to pay it off, is that from like those CDs maturing plus savings in your first job? How does a 22 year old kid get 12 grand to pay this thing off in six months? Yeah. So the CDs maturing was what allowed me to keep my housing expenses really low. When I was looking for a place to live in Indianapolis, when I first uh, exited school, I was looking at apartments. I was looking at, at houses to rent. And I ultimately found a solution to rent a room in someone's house. And it was a fixed rate they were looking for. I believe it was five, $600 a month. And I said to them, I can pay you for a whole year up front if we can make this number go down some. So I believe I paid something like $400 a month all in for my expenses, which included the utilities they were paying, the cable they were paying, the internet they were paying. That was my fixed expense. And that allowed me to then go and earn as, as much money as I could in my day job to pay off my student loans. And then the, the next step to that was to save as much money as I could to get into a house of my own. There's so much here. Okay. So can we just talk about tying this theme? You know, everything is negotiable. And some of us take a look at the rent and say, ah, okay, well, that's the price is the price. But you're just saying, all right, cash is fungible. Money is fungible. How can I structure this? That would be a win-win for them and allow me to significantly reduce the cost of that monthly outflow. That I don't think I've heard anybody suggest that. And Brad, it's brilliant. Yeah, that's incredible. I mean, the power of having money, right? Like this is what we talk about. More power accrues to you all along your FI journey. Even if like you, Anthony, you're at the start, I guess, in terms of time, right? But just by having those X number of thousands of dollars in the bank, five, 10,000 gave you this position of power that somebody who's coming into rent, like they're worried, are they going to be able to pay month to month? And that's why they charge that five to 600. But man, if you walk in and say, here's $4,800, I'm prepaying for a year. They're like, okay, I'm pretty happy with that. That, that is power. And that's incredible. Yeah, that's exactly how it worked. And so that took care of my first year. And then uh, after that first year was up, I did go and rent an apartment for, for 10 months. And I, I paid slightly more for that, but not much. And I, I still worked as hard as I could to keep my expenses low at the time while I was getting ready to ultimately buy a house in town. For this house in town, were you a house hacker on the other side of the equation? Yeah. Once I bought the house, it was a couple months that I lived in it by myself, but the following May, when students from Ball State were graduating, I still knew a couple of uh, colleagues from younger years of architecture school, and I had a couple of them move in with me. So I was renting the upstairs rooms in this house. I, I had a master on main uh, floor plan, and so the upstairs rooms were rented, and for about two years or so, I didn't pay much more than $100 or so on my mortgage out of my own pocket. Wow, that's amazing. So talk me through, like, how did you get the down payment for this? Was it just once you're living in this apartment at the beginning, you're just saving like crazy? Like, was it always your goal to house hack? Talk me through that thought process at the inception. Yeah. So the inception is that, that housing at the time in Indianapolis was still relatively affordable. About $100,000 got you an acceptable three-bedroom house. And so I was able to not have to come out of pocket a huge amount on this down payment. I, I put 10% down on the first house, and there's a, a good nugget of information here. Uh, I was able to take a 10% down loan and buy out the PMI on that loan uh, just because I asked. I didn't want to pay PMI for several months and I asked what it would take for that PMI to go away and they said, well, you can prepay it and I, I forget what the, the exact cost was, but 
it was less than a year's worth of monthly PMI payments to make it go away forever. And I still have that house five years later. So that's been a, a win all the way around. Wow. I've never heard of that. I'm almost flabbergasted. I don't, I don't know what questions to ask. Like, is that, is that a program you've ever heard of outside of your particular instance? Is it the particular company you use? I mean, do you have any sense of that? I know the simple answer is you might not, but talk me through this. Yeah, I'm not sure that all mortgage lenders will do this, but I had a conventional loan and I put 10% down and everything is negotiable if you ask the question. You may be told no, but you may be told yes. I want the details on this. So you are essentially able to avoid PMI without having 20% down on the property by doing what exactly? Yeah. So I asked if there was any way to buy out the PMI on this loan. That saved me at the time from coming out of pocket another 10 grand to get to 20% down. I didn't have that 10 grand. So I I wanted to get savvy. And so the PMI on this loan would have been about $100 a month. And so I asked the question, is there any way to prepay the PMI? Is there any way to make this go away? And they said, yeah, we can have you buy out your PMI. And the, the rate was maybe $1,500 or, or maybe it was $1,000 to buy out that PMI outright up front. Then I never had a PMI payment on this mortgage. Are you just prepaying the PMI? I just want to clarify here, just, just so I'm understanding this. So let, you know, if you, let's say you have PMI on your mortgage, then you're paying $100 a month for the duration of the mortgage until you cross the, the 20% threshold or you have it recast, et cetera. Are you just essentially paying them for 10 months of PMI upfront? No, you're paying for the PMI to disappear from the loan. And so with the amount that I prepaid upfront, if you stacked that on top of, of what I would have to pay on the mortgage, I wouldn't have made it to 20% equity in the loan by that time. So I was cash ahead buying out the PMI as opposed to paying the PMI for several years until I reached 20% equity. Oh, yeah. And I mean, to reach 20% equity, to pay down an additional 10% of equity would take many, many years. So, uh, I mean, if if they're giving you this option, it sounds like they're just offering a settlement. I, I Again, I've never heard this before, so you may have just gotten lucky. But if this is something that, to your point, everything is negotiable and it doesn't hurt to ask the question. So even if you're the only person in America that got this settlement, I think there's still a takeaway for the audience. Everything is negotiable and it never hurts to ask, even if it's an off the wall question. I, Anthony, would have never, ever thought to ask that question because everything I've ever heard about PMI is just based on 20%. So when you have 20% equity, it goes away. That's it, right? And you can only kind of work around that. Do you recast your mortgage? Do you pay down extra? Like all this other stuff, you asked a different question. And to me, that is the takeaway. So you find yourself in the situation of being essentially a landlord. Now you have uh, tenants on the same property as you. I got to imagine that this is kind of reminding you of your RA days a little bit. Yeah, it was very similar. You know, the RA position set me up as it was my first step into property management. And I was doing it for, I think I had 80 tenants that, excuse me, 80 residents, however you want to say it that first year. And so now only having two of them and them, them living in my house, it, it worked out really easily. And, uh, you know, I, I pre-screened these folks by way of uh, knowing them from college. So I, I knew that they would be a good fit. And they stuck around really uh, up until the point where, where I got married and, and my wife moved in with me. Yeah, that's really cool. I mean, you can't ask for, for better pre-screening of tenants than that. And then when your wife moved in, we've had other people in the FI community who continue house hacking, even with a family. But like, was that a consideration for you or was it, hey, we're getting married. It's time to stop doing this. Talk me through that. 
when my fiance at the time and I, now my wife, and I discussed uh, how we were going to handle that, we knew that we wanted to live by ourselves for at least a little while before we would attempt to, to house hack our own house. And it just so happened that the tenants that I had were in phases of life where they were ready to move on. As a matter of fact, one of them took a job out of state anyway. So it really worked out for everyone. And it was just me and my wife living in the house. But uh, it's funny, the house that was very big for three guys suddenly became a really small house for my wife and I. (laughs) I know the feeling. (laughs) So what did you guys do next? Did that tee you up for your next property? Yeah, it did. And so ultimately, I I didn't have any student loan debt. Fortunately, my wife didn't have any student loan debt. We were both working at the time. And so we were able to have a really good savings rate. And we ended up buying another house at the end of 2016. And we moved into that house. But we never sold the first house that I had bought prior. And that that first house, which was first a house hack rental, became our first full-term rental in the traditional sense of single-family house renting. And so that process that you use that now have that have you in the second home, have you replicated that and continued with your landlorded adventure? Is this, is this been like a primary investment vehicle for you? Like carry us forward into 2018 here. Yeah. So the house that I bought in 2014 that I'm renting out, still renting out, going fine. We bought a house in 2016 and we still live in the house that we bought in 16. And we bought another house at the end of 2018. We have that house rented out as well. And that's another single family rental, like traditional sense? That's correct. Uh, Both of the houses we're renting out are three bed, two bath, two car garage, which is really, really common for suburban Indianapolis. Gotcha. How, How much did that third house cost roughly? It was listed for 140 and I picked it up for 125. I've had fantastic luck over the years in the last two houses that we've bought to try to purchase homes between Thanksgiving and Christmas. The market slows down significantly. Uh, there's some sort of cabin fever that sets in and it allows the competition among buyers to be lower. Are you following like the 1% rule? Are you looking at this as a cash flow option? Is it appreciation? Are you trying to pay off the mortgage? Really talk me through the numbers because at this point, this seems like your strategy. You own three properties. You just bought a new one last year. I assume this is going to be something you're doing into the future. Yeah. So these first homes that I've bought, the the two houses that are rented plus my home, they're all on 15-year mortgages. So this is more of an equity play for us right now than it is a cash flow play. We generally try to to hit the 1% rule and we've been successful with that, but that's not what's driving us. We want to make sure that that once we've covered all of our expenses, including the loan, the interest, the taxes, the future capital expenses that we'll have, and the repairs, that we're not having to come out of pocket any additionally for these rentals than we have so far. And so really, we're playing it as a break-even scenario, knowing that we're piling substantial equity into these homes. Can I talk about that a little bit further? I just Just for our audience and maybe people that aren't deep in the real estate world, I'm just curious, in your mind... What does that mean for you? Does that mean that you expect these properties to appreciate significantly over time? So you're going to be excited to own them and eventually pull them out. Like when you say an equity play, like you could just have equity in a bank account, right? I mean, in terms of like growing your total net worth in your mind, what sort of return on this investment do you expect? Yeah. So we, we expect the houses to appreciate, but that's not our driver either. Our driver specifically for these homes is that we are in 15-year mortgages. So in years 16 and beyond, there will be no debt on these houses. And the entirety of the rents, which ought to continue to, to increase over time, will end up being significant cash flow. 
Yeah. So in essence, you're just having your renters pay off your mortgages over a 15 year period. And to have those accelerated 15 year mortgages and still be either, like you said, cash flow neutral or slightly positive and pay down this mortgage all the while. I mean, that's kind of an interesting phi play, right? Over 15 years, when you get these things paid off, that's a huge amount of income to you every single month that almost operates as a significant portion of, of the money you'll need to live on. That's a good portion of your FI ultimate journey just in this 15-year period, right? That's correct. And so we anticipate that we'll replicate this process and see how many houses it takes for us to cover our expenses to the point where these houses, once paid off, will fully fund our lifestyle. And we're, we're still working toward exactly what that fine number is for us. Uh, we have our first child on the way, then uh, it's possible that we have more along the way. So we'll, we'll get a better sense of what our true fine number is for our expenses as we move forward in our lives. But this play to, to have these rents pay off these mortgages and then be able to fund our lifestyle is the long-term play. So this is interesting. So one of the reasons that these homes are acting neutral is as Brad pointed out, you're on 15 year mortgages. So the mortgage payment is, is much higher. What is the rent that you're collecting from the different properties? And if the mortgage was paid off, what sort of cash flow would you expect the two rentals to provide? So I'm getting a 1170 for one of the houses and I'm getting 1290 for the other. And the respective loans right now are roughly $800 and $900. And obviously those loans have insurance built into them. So I'll still have to pay insurance after, uh, after the loans are paid off. But these houses ought to be able to cash flow once they're paid off somewhere in the $700 to $800 range per and, month. And in terms of tenants, have these been long-term tenants? Do you have significant vacancies? Like, Just talk me through that a little bit. I've worked pretty hard to limit my vacancies to no more than a week when we have turnover, but our turnover has been very low so far. We put a lot of effort into the front end to screen our tenants to make sure that we're not setting anybody up to fail so that they have the ability to pay the rent, we have the ability to take care of them, and really the effort in being a real estate landlord in the single family world is to do your work up front and make sure that you're finding quality tenants to place in your homes. Follow up on that. You know, your landlording adventure started in a college town. Is that still the type of neighborhood that you are investing in for your rentals or have you moved out of that? No, I've, I've moved out of that. I've personally have been investing within about a 30 minute drive of where I live in Indianapolis and so far, that's that's been affordable. Uh, the Indianapolis real estate market is hot, and so our our next deal may have to be a little further away. But that's where we are right now. So, Anthony, I mean, clearly you've become a savvy real estate investor, and it's working for you and your family. I guess I wanted to kind of step out of that for a second and talk about your path to financial independence. Are you just using this kind of current strategy that you've laid out for us to reach financial independence or have you leaned on some other, I guess we could say pillars of five? I mean, talk to us just for a second on what you've pulled off in your career and what other vehicles you're using to invest for you and your family. Yeah, the real estate is one of our, our pillars, if you'd say it that way. We also invest in, in general retirement funds. Uh, I have a 401k. My wife has a 403b. She's an educator. And so we contribute to that. We both grew up in the camp of Dave Ramsey. So we, we started that at 15% of our income into those those directions. Through listening to the Choose FI podcast, we've increased our 
401k contributions to try to continue to get our taxable income down lower and lower as a long-term play. And so we're, we're attacking it at both angles, both the traditional retirement vehicles as well as the real estate. Cool. And this is something that, that a lot of people always ask about. Where are you actually putting your savings? How do you prioritize? It's easy to say, oh, max out your 401k and your 403b, right? And, and I think that's great advice. I mean, clearly lowering your taxable income and all that good stuff. I mean, we know that. But you have this plan to buy more houses. Do you and your wife have conversations about where you decide to direct your savings? How does that actually physically occur of, okay, we're going to do this this year. Like, this is the plan. Yeah, we, we discuss it regularly. You know, again, we come from the Dave Ramsey camp, so we budget every month and we have an idea of what we can save, what we can spend, what we can give. That gives us a general horizon as to when it's realistic for us to to look at buying the next house, you know, with a, with a baby on the way, we're pressing pause a little bit right now. But once we get baby home, we'll uh, be able to take another step at it and look and see when it makes sense to buy house number three for rentals. I wanted to actually, you mentioned we come from the Dave Ramsey camp. I want to like dial that back a little bit and find a little bit more about what that means for you and then how maybe your perspective has shifted or been confirmed by finding the uh, financial independence community. Yeah. So I started listening to Dave Ramsey in college on his podcast, uh, and that that really set the foundation for me to budget every month and track my spending and get rid of the student loan debt that I had as quickly as I could. But I don't subscribe with Dave in terms of going out and getting mortgages to buy houses because those aren't being paid directly out of my own income. We have We have rent coming in for those. So that's a different scenario. It's funny, anytime that somebody calls Dave's show and they they talk about having rental income, Dave never says to go get more rental units, but he never tells those people to sell their units either. You know what's so funny is I actually remember uh, in 2008, definitely having listened to several Dave Ramsey podcasts. Like you said, it's a free way for Dave. (laughs) That's right. But I'm curious when you're listening to Dave and Dave's show, it's a very, it's a fixed number of steps. You know what he is going to say, right? I know what the next thing he is going to say is. And so for me, when I found the financial independence community, I found all these other options, these ways that people were pursuing the same path and having these incredible results. And I'm curious for you, what was your experience with that as well? Yeah. So Dave's steps are very linear. That's correct. And if you follow Dave's camp, you don't get into rental property investing until you're at the very end of the game and he he expects you to pay cash for those rentals. And if we were to take on that path, we wouldn't get into to rental property for another several years. And I didn't want to to limit my exponential opportunity to grow with with real estate investing when we have the options and we have the the financing in order to get that going right now in a way that I feel is risk averse enough to feel comfortable doing it. Awesome, man. So let's talk about your path to financial independence. Like based on your current trajectory, have you and your wife done any forecasting on when you would reach that phi date? Not necessarily saying you are walking away from your jobs, but when you reach financial independence? Yeah, you know, we're we're tracking to have mortgages paid off at 39, 41, and 43 right now. And that's definitely the play that we're going toward. If we can hit that 43 or maybe 45 number, we're definitely aiming to get there quicker than 67. Awesome. Someone's listening to this. They've gotten value from their story. They have a follow-up question for you. What is the best way to connect with you? Instagram is probably the best way. I'm at Anthony Drew Gary. All right, Anthony, Drew, Gary on most shows. That would be the end of the episode. But on this show, we would love to give you the chance to tackle the hot seat. Are you ready for this? 
Yes, sir. In a world drowning in debt and rampant consumption, trapped by the chains of lifestyle inflation, these questions highlight the secrets of those who have broken free. Welcome to the Choose FI Hot Seat. All right, Anthony, question number one, your favorite blog. I don't read a ton of blogs, but I would recommend for anyone that's interested in investing in real estate to subscribe to your local business journal. You want to be in the know about current events and, and happenings in the area that you're investing and how they could impact your deals. All right. Question number two, your favorite article of all time. I learned by listening rather than reading, so I'm going to give you a YouTube video instead. Brandon Turner over at Bigger Pockets has published a video on calculating numbers for rental property using the four square method. And that's been the basis for every rental property prospect I've ever analyzed. Awesome. Ooh. We'll have that linked in the show notes for sure. All right, Anthony, question number three, your favorite life hack. Again, it's learning by listening. I, I podcast to and from work. And more importantly, the hack would be playing those episodes at one and a half or two times speed. It equates to roughly 100 hours worth of content a month for me, and I could never sit and read content that long. So, Brad, I actually listened to one of our podcasts at 1.5 speed, and the next day I found myself talking faster, which is a problem to begin with. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you speak a little quickly already, so yeah, no, no need to speed you up anymore. Must get my words out faster. <laughs> All right, question number four, your biggest financial mistake. I spent five years with my first employer, and when I made a career change, I rolled my 401k over into an IRA with a fund manager who uh, had me invested in front-end loaded funds. Not long after that, I discovered uh, Choose FI and the podcast, and a few months later, I moved everything over to Vanguard, but uh, I essentially gave 5% of everything I had in my 401k to a fund manager in the process. Yep. Sounds like some familiar advice. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's crazy though, Anthony. So just by getting the wrong advisor, you took all of your money in your 401k and yeah, took a 5% haircut just because some person essentially took it. It, it. it is astounding to me that that's not criminal. Honestly, it's crazy. Yeah, I did it voluntarily based on the information I had at the time. And now I'm fortunate to have better information for all the years moving forward. Now, what a brilliant way to look at it. I mean, right. Obviously, you did it on your own volition, right? Nobody had a gun to your head. So yeah, that's a very, very valid point. But man, it is about getting that information. And and yeah, that's why we hope that this podcast and the financial independence movement generally spreads. All right. Question number five, the advice you would give your younger self. I don't feel old enough to be qualified to answer this, but I like <laughs> to steal Jim Rome's. You're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. It's incredibly important to surround yourself with people who build you up and it's important to build them up as well. That's awesome advice. Huge fan of the quote. All right. Now we do have a bonus question for you. What is one purchase that you've made over the past 12 months that has brought the most value to your life? Yeah, it gets cold in Indiana and people like to ask me what I do for a living. And I like to joke that I'm an amateur golfer who happens to pay the bills working in real estate. So this... <laughs> So this past winter, I purchased a 12-foot turf uh, putting mat from Amazon so that I don't get rusty with the putter over the winter. Awesome. Well, Anthony, this has been so much fun. Thank you for coming on the show today. It's been a pleasure.
To our audience, if you got value from today's episode, and if you've been getting value from the episodes up to this point, just take one second and press the subscribe button on the platform you're listening to this on. Just let the providers know you're getting value from the show and you want to be here when we produce additional content. If you want to support us in what we're doing here at Choose FI, here are four easy ways. One, leave us an iTunes review. To do that, just go to chooseify.com slash iTunes. Two, use our page to sign up for travel credit cards. If you want to travel the world with miles and points instead of your hard-earned dollars, then just go to chooseify.com slash cards and get started today. Three, if you're working on the milestones of Fi, set up a personal capital account to track your progress and use our affiliate link. It's completely free and just go to chooseify.com slash PC. P is in Paul, C is in Cap. And four, and most importantly, find your friends, coworkers, and family members who might be open to this message and tell them about the podcast. Have them start with episode 100. It is a fantastic starting place. All right, my friends, the fire is spreading. We'll see you next time as we continue to go down the road less traveled. You've been listening to Choose FI Radio Podcast, where we help middle-class America build wealth one life hack at a time.